This episode is brought to you by GSK. No two cancers are the same. That's why at GSK, our oncology scientists are working on personalized treatments. One way we design these new medicines is by harnessing a patient's own immune system to target and destroy tumors. And by creating new combinations of medicines that work better together, we hope to transform cancer treatment for patients in the future. Hello, I'm John Donvan, host and moderator of Intelligence Squared U.S. One note before we begin. The debate you're about to hear was recorded in early August, while news coming out of Syria is evolving. This debate provides an important grounding in the key issues at stake for U.S. involvement. The panelists delivered a debate on the long view, and those arguments still stand. There are times when, for a president, there is nothing to debate. We are attacked you go to war. Pearl Harbor, September 2001. Other people's wars, those are trickier. The U.S. intervened to put an end to the killing in Bosnia and was glad that it did. The U.S. was passive about mass killing in Rwanda and ended up regretting that. So now there is Syria and it is a mess, a death toll that is crossing into six figures, millions of people, homeless, a dictator who is suspected of using chemical weapons against his own people, and fighters, thousands of them from all over the world, descending on the chaos with a vision of creating an Islamist state. So does it behoove the U.S. urgently and immediately to get more involved in Syria, up to and possibly including military action? Or is the wiser thing for the U.S., when it appears there are no good options, to stay back and maybe this time let somebody else mostly sort out the problem? Now, that sounds like a debate, so let's have it. Yes or no to this statement. The U.S. has no dog in the fight in Syria. A debate from Intelligence Squared U.S. We are in Aspen and on the stage of the Pepke Auditorium at the Aspen Institute and in partnership with the Aspen Strategy Group. We have four superbly qualified debaters, two against two, who will be arguing out this motion for and against the U.S. has no dog in the fight in Syria. As always, our debates go in three rounds, and then the audience votes to choose the winner. And only one side can win. Let's meet our debaters. And first, ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Graham Allison. Graham, you are the director of Harvard's uh, Belfer Center for Science and International Affairs. You served in the Reagan and the Clinton administrations. You are Assistant Secretary of Defense uh, under Clinton. As a youth, before all of that, you wrote a book called Essence of Decision on the Cuban Missile Crisis. You also, as a youth at age 31, made it to full professor at Harvard. So, Graham Allison, what took you so long? <laughs> well, I was young and even more foolish. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, Graham Allison. And Graham, your partner tonight in this debate is? Is the handsome Richard Falkenrath. Ladies and gentlemen, Richard Falkenrath. Richard, you're also taking the position that the U.S. has no dog in the fight in Syria. You are a principal of the Chertoff Group. You're an adjunct senior fellow at the Council on Foreign Relations. You served in several capacities during the George W. Bush administration, including Deputy Homeland Security Advisor, Deputy Assistant to the President. Uh, Rich, you recently told Bloomberg, and I quote, The cold hard facts are that as a global economic matter, Syria just doesn't matter that much. That is about as blunt as it gets. Is is blunt your style? Yes. (laughs) Ladies and gentlemen, Richard Falconrath. 
Our motion is the U.S. has no dog in the fight in Syria. And here to argue against the motion, I'd like to introduce and welcome Nicholas Burns. Ladies and gentlemen, Nicholas Burns. Nick, you're a professor at the Harvard Kennedy School and director of the Aspen Strategy Group. You're a career foreign service officer, done a lot of stuff, undersecretary of state for political affairs from 2005 to 2006, lead U.S. negotiator on Iran's nuclear program, ambassador to NATO, ambassador to Greece, special assistant to President Clinton, director of Soviet affairs under President H.W. Bush. Back in 1990, you were stationed in Mauritania as an intern. So you are here to tell the young people of America that a good internship can get you someplace. <laughs> <laughs> in 1980, I was the lowest-ranking person in the history of the United States government in Mauritania, but it was a great experience. Thank you. <laughs> Nick Burns, ladies and gentlemen. And Nick, your partner is? Ambassador Nigel Scheinwald. Ladies and gentlemen, Sir Nigel Scheinwald. <laughs> Sir Nigel, you have agreed that while you're here in the colonies and for purposes of this debate, you will be Nigel. <laughs> Uh, You are also arguing against the motion that the U.S. has no dog in the fight. It means you think the U.S. does have a dog in this fight. You were British ambassador to the United States. You were a foreign policy and defense advisor to Prime Minister Tony Blair. In 2006, you went to Syria. You held secret talks with President Bashar al-Assad. Guardian said you offered Assad a choice, continue an alliance with Iran or enjoy a normalization of relations with the West. He made his choice. We know that. What we want to know from you... What's the guy like? <laughs> Not something I want to do every week, I think. Yeah. Um, but it was, a, it was a very tough conversation, and I'll talk a bit more about it later. All right. Thanks very much, ladies and gentlemen. Nigel Scheinwald. So, on to round one. Our motion is the U.S. has no dog in the fight in Syria. And here to speak first for the motion, uh, Graham Allison. He is director of the Belfort Center for Science and International Affairs and former Assistant Secretary of Defense. Ladies and gentlemen, Graham Allison. As you think about the argument tonight, uh, consider this. You go around a corner, you confront uh, dogs in a fight, and you will think what to do. And compare that with a second case, you're confronting a dog fight in which one dog has its mouth around the other's throat and you discover that it's your dog. The question is, is this America's dog in this fight? So as the moderator reminded us, this assignment tonight is not whether the U.S. should care about the dogs that are tearing each other apart in Syria tonight. It's tragic. Uh, The question is, how much should we care and what should we do about it? In the language of national security, the question is, does what's happening in Syria so impact American vital national interests that we're compelled to do everything we can, including military actions, to secure our interest? That's what it is to have a vital national interest. And secondly, if the answer to that is yes, or even if you're a little shaky on that one, Has anybody been able to identify a feasible American military intervention that would likely make the situation better over the long run after we had acted than in the case we did not act? Our answer to these questions are no and no. No, the U.S. does not have a vital national interest in what's happening in Syria. And to no, no one is at least to my satisfaction, or Rich's, or indeed to Chairman Dempsey, the chairman of the JCS, identified a feasible American military intervention, which 
after the fact, would likely make the situation over time better than the alternative. Vital in the dictionary, read it, says, essential for survival and well-being. In the mantra of national security, it says, essential for the preservation of the U.S. as a free society with our fundamental institutions and values intact. In our view, that's not the case here. Syria does not meet that test. Now, some of you will say, well, maybe that's too high a test. I mean, could anything threaten our vital interest? And I would say in 1990, when Saddam tried to annex Kuwait and threatened the whole possibility of the flow of oil from uh, the Persian Gulf, President Bush, the father, chose military action, and that was the right choice. In t- Graham Allison, I'm sorry, your introductory remark time is up and concluded. Thank you very much, Graham Allison. Our motion is the U.S. has no dog in the fight in Syria, and are here to speak against the motion as our next debater, Nick Burns. He is professor at the Harvard Kennedy School, director of the Aspen Strategy Group, and former Undersecretary of State for Political Affairs. Ladies and gentlemen, Nicholas Burns. We've been asked to address one question. Does the United States of America have a dog in the fight in Syria? The question wasn't whether it's vital. The question wasn't whether it's feasible. Do we have an interest in who wins in this fight in Syria? And the answer is unequivocally, of course, yes. Because Americans should be supporting the Syrian people who've been brutalized by the Syrian dictatorship of Bashar al-Assad. And we should oppose the Assad regime because it's being supported by Iran and Hezbollah and Russia. So that's the dog in the fight for the United States. And what happens in Syria really matters to our country, for our national security. I would say it matters to every American. Let me give you three reasons why. First, there's a humanitarian imperative. More than 100,000 Syrians have been killed in the last two and a half years, all civilians. 1.8 million Syrian refugees, 6.8 million people in need of humanitarian support. And of those people, 4.5 million have lost their homes in Syria. Secretary of State, former Secretary of State Madeleine Albright is here, and she and I were in Morocco a couple of months ago. We met with the UN envoy for Syria, Lakhdar Brahimi. He told us something that I don't think I won't forget. He said, Syria is melting away because of this humanitarian crisis. So do we have a dog in the fight? The second reason is geography. Syria is a neighbor to very important friends and allies of the United States. It's a neighbor to Israel. It's a neighbor to Turkey to Iraq, to Jordan, and to Lebanon. It means that what happens there really matters to the United States and especially to our ally Israel. And third, Syria matters to the United States because who is arming and aiding and financing this regime? It's our enemy, Iran, and its partner, Hezbollah, and it's our adversary, Russia. So if Assad wins, Iran and Hezbollah become infinitely stronger And that puts Israel, the United States, and all of our moderate Arab friends at a distinct strategic disadvantage. Do we have a dog in this fight? You better believe we have a dog in this fight. Nigel and I support what President Obama has been trying to do. There's a coalition of countries, the United States, the European countries, Turkey, nearly all the Arab countries, supported by Israel, who all want to see the following happen. They're trying to launch an intensified international effort. It's been two weeks so far. It needs to be strengthened to support the moderate rebels and the majority of the Syrian population who support the rebel movement. 
and, and this um, coalition as well, is seeking now to build a transitional government formed by the rebel movement that would be a government that can compete with the Assad regime for political support through which we can give humanitarian aid. And President Obama's former Syria coordinator, Fred Hoff, testified before Congress on July 17th that that should be now the central objective of this coalition. They want to support a political process that eventually, over time, and it's going to take a long time to make sure that Assad can leave, that a new and more stable transitional government can take his place. It won't be perfect, but at the end of the day, and maybe it's a year or two or three from now, there's a better, more humane government in power in Damascus. Thank you, Nick Burns. I'm John Donvan, and this is Intelligence Squared U.S., Oxford-style debating on America's shores. Stay with us. Hello, I'm John Donvan, host and moderator of Intelligence Squared U.S. One note as we continue. The debate you're listening to was recorded in early August. While news coming out of Syria is evolving, this debate provides an important grounding in the key issues at stake for U.S. involvement. The debaters delivered arguments on the long view, and those arguments still stand. So a reminder of where we are. We are halfway through the opening round of this Intelligence Squared U.S. debate. I'm John Donvan. We have four debaters, two teams of two, fighting it out over this motion. The U.S. has no dog in the fight in Syria. You've heard the first two debaters, and now on to the third. Speaking in support of the motion that the U.S. has no dog in the fight in Syria, I want to introduce uh, Richard Falkenroth. He is a principal with the Chertoff Group, an adjunct senior fellow for counterterrorism and homeland security at the Council on Foreign Relations, former deputy homeland security. Advisor. Ladies and gentlemen, Richard Falkenroth. Thank, thank you, John. Uh, I must just start by saying this is an immensely difficult and tragic problem. I will say, however, that there are some things that divide the two sides of the, of the debate. And one, as my colleague Graham said, is really what, what it means to have a dog in the fight. And we stand for a view which says it means you have a vital national interest in stake, which makes it so compelling that you lead and do whatever is necessary to make sure that your vital interests are protected. And we don't think that exists uh, in Syria. Uh, On the uh, ground truth and the conflict, this is not a simple conflict of good versus evil, though Saad certainly is evil, and it is not a single conflict. This is many different conflicts. And frankly, a fatal flaw in Nick and Nigel's position here is there is no opposition for us to support. You'd think that if you had a dog in the fight, you could at least have a name for the dog on the other side, but it's not good enough to say the the Syrian people or the Syrian opposition because the fact is there is no unified opposition and there is no connection between the mostly exile-based political leadership and the fighters on the ground. There's the Syrian Free Army, the Syrian Liberation Front, the Syrian Islamic Front, the al-Nusra Front, various Kurdish groups, independent groups, uh, all of whom uh, are, in fact, umbrella groups of smaller numbers of fighters out there in the field running their own operations. There are also organizers, the national coalition, who are mostly outside of the country, not connected to the fighters on the inside and not able to dictate what happens on the ground. And, in fact... The most effective and vicious and aggressive fighters in this conflict are ones with whom we would never side. The, one, the last one I mentioned was the al-Nusra Front. This is a wing of al-Qaeda. It has sworn allegiance to Ayman Zawahiri. So how can you have a dog in the fight when you can't even identify the dog? Finally, I want to say something about what I'd call the moral hazard of half measures. 
we have there's an unfortunate leitmotif in in American foreign policy, which is every so often uh, we give support and comfort to groups which wish to rise up against an autocrat, uh, and then we get cold feet uh, and leave them dangling. Uh, and we did that in Hungary in 1956. We did it in the Bay of Pigs in 61, in Prague in 1968, in southern Iraq in 1991. Uh, and we need to be very careful about small half measures in steps which are really have no prospect of success but do make us complicit in the violent outcome which we really cannot control uh, and cannot dictate. And that's the essence of the problem here. We want to make it better but it really is not so vital to allow us to be ready to do everything it takes to get the outcome that would be uh, better for us and the region. Thank you. Thank you, Richard Falkenroth. Our motion is the U.S. has no dog in the fight in Syria. And here to speak as our final opening statement against the motion, Nigel Scheinwald. He served as British ambassador to the U.S. and as foreign policy and defense advisor to Prime Minister Tony Blair. Ladies and gentlemen, Nigel Scheinwald. Now, I just want to go back to the motion. I'm a Brit, and I think I know something about the English language. And um, to me, having no dog in the fight uh, in Syria means um, something very simple. It means that you don't, uh, you're not concerned, you don't have an interest, and you won't be affected by the outcome. That's my dictionary definition. I think if you look it up, that's what you'll find. The question is, how important is is this issue? How much does does it affect American interests, European interests, world interests? And is there some sensible way through in a world where things are much more complicated than they were uh, in 1990, when we had the Kuwait uh, conflict, where we have to deal in grey as much as in black and white? I would say that in today's world, you're dealing with complex changes uh, within countries. You're dealing with situations of extremism, instability. You're dealing with a humanitarian tragedy here in, uh, here in Syria. And you have to work out whether there's some recipe which has a reasonable chance of success. And the best need not be the enemy of the good in deciding that. I don't think, too, that we can wait for the perfect opposition party, some Jeffersonian democratic ideal to be formed in Syria. We don't have perfect opposition parties in our own countries, uh, let alone uh, in Syria or elsewhere uh, in the Middle East. We've got to go with the situation on the ground in the Middle East at the moment, and we have to decide whether we understand that dictators like Assad will at some point or other be swept away, and whether we're prepared just to sit it out Um, If Assad stays in power, Iran, Russia and Hezbollah are going to win. The longer this goes on, the conflict in Syria is going to spill over into the rest of the region. This split between the Sunni and the Shia uh, within Islam is going to expand. And speaking certainly for my country, we've seen a radicalization of our Muslim population because of Syria. It's become a um, a recruiting sergeant for radicals uh, around the world. And I think that's a a real risk for uh, the UK, for the US, uh, and for others. Um, I spent nearly 36 years in the British Diplomatic Service, uh, and I and my compatriots are friends of this country. But I do worry about America's credibility and standing if we just sit this one out. This administration, my government, many other governments, have said unequivocally over the months that Assad must go. So what happens if he stays? Is that without um, any consequence. 
At the very least, Iran is going to be watching and is going to draw a conclusion about American resolve and determination. Russia and China will be watching. So to my mind, that is a dog in the fight. Um, That's a strategic stake for the United States and for Britain, and we've got to support this trend in the Arab world, and we've got to support the Syrian people. Thank you, Nigel Thank you. Your time is up. Ladies and gentlemen, Nigel Steinwald. And that concludes round one of this Intelligence Squared U.S. debate, where the motion being debated is the U.S. has no dog in the fight in Syria. Now on to round two. Round two is where the debaters uh, address each other directly and also answer questions from you in the audience and from me. We have two teams of two arguing out this motion. The U.S. has no dog in the fight in Syria. Graham Allison and Richard Falkenroth are arguing in support of the motion, no dog in the fight. They argue... Uh, Syria just does not represent a vital U.S. interest, that there is no dog to pick in that fight, that the opposition fighting Assad is so fractured uh, that it's difficult to know who should get the arms, and a lot of them are people who would not end up being our friends. They say this is not one where the U.S. should be leading. Their opponents, Nick Burns and Nigel Schoenweld, say this is one where absolutely the U.S. must lead. The U.S. cannot sit this out, that it has a moral and pragmatic imperative to get involved for humanitarian reasons, for political reasons. They say that if Assad wins, our allies in the region are really going to be in trouble. I want to put a question to the side that's arguing that the U.S. has no dog in the fight in Syria. It looks as though what we have here basically to some degree is a disagreement about definition of terms. And I want to put to you the question, Just, I think this allows us to go to some specifics, to look at some of what's actually happening there and ask you to tell us why that's not vital. For example, as your opponents have pointed out, if Syria melts away as a state, fueling and inviting a radicalization of a generation who would be our enemies, how is that not a vital interest? And why isn't it? Well, a, good, a very good question. I think the... U.S. is a global power, and I think uh, if I go back to Nigel's point just for a second, I think you set up a bit of a straw dog uh, with, a, with uh, respect. The notion that there's anywhere we don't care about, excuse me, we care about things in 200 countries today. Things happening everywhere impact U.S. interests. But because the ability of the U.S., both in terms of, of uh, mind share and also capabilities, is limited, if Syria melts down and comes to be three states or chaotic or more chaotic than it is today. Will this be horrible? Yes. Will it have negative impacts on U.S. interests? Of course. Does it rise to the level of vital that would lead, that would compel a responsible government to intervene militarily if that's the only way to resolve the issue? And I would say the answer is no. If Syria melts down, this will be horrible. It'll have impacts on Lebanon and on Iraq, of course. It'll (laughs) exacerbate the Sunni-Shiite division, of course. All those things are also happening before Syria. Could you you take – I want to go to the other side first, Richard, but I just want to ask Graham to take 15 seconds. What would represent a threat to America's vital interest, just to put the marker out there? If we look to the year ahead, Iran getting nuclear weapons – Okay, let's go to the other side. Who would like to respond? Nick Burns. Well, I just say this. The question is, who has a dog in the fight in Syria? Do we have one? This is not an easy choice. And generally in my career, John, this answers the question, American presidents do not put American troops into harm's way unless it's a vital interest. But that's not what President Obama is trying to do. He's not trying to put American troops into Syria. In fact, he said he won't. 
And Nigel and I are just arguing because of the humanitarian interests, because of where Syria is, its proximity to Israel and other countries, because of the imminent victory of Iran in a major power play, we need to be active with President Obama's plan. And, and I think the, the key disagreement, and both sides used this word, was the word lead. And this side said this is not one where the U.S. needs to lead. This side said the U.S. needs to lead. And quoting you, Nigel Steinwald, you can't sit this out. So I want to take that back to Richard Falkenroth, this question of, of leadership. If you, there's a lot of information that's coming out of Syria now, but what the people engaged are suffering from this fighting actually think. And as far as they're concerned, we're sitting this one out. They're, it's very clear the reporting out of Syria is the U.S. is having no impact on the ground. In fact, the narrative looks more like al-Qaeda is having an impact and Hezbollah is having an impact, but we are not. You, you know, President Obama is stuck with no good options because in order to really make an impact here, we have to make a difference on the ground. It's not enough to figure out who to write a check to or ship a bunch of light arms to. You have to figure out who are we tipping the military balance in favor of so that there's a better outcome at the end. And we are not doing that. But you think that's the right choice at this point? Yes. Okay. Let's take it back to Nigel Scheinwald. I just think that Rich's analysis is, is flawed and slanted in his favor because the reality is that there is a political opposition in Syria. It's fragmented, but there is a central group that all of us uh, in the United States, in Europe in the Arab League are supporting and recognize as an alternative government. And there is a group called the Free Syrian Army that can channel arms, um, and we've seen continued taking of territory by the the moderate and recognized groups. I accept that there is al-Qaeda involved, there are a whole bunch of other groups involved, but that's been the situation throughout the Middle East over the past couple of years. And in, in all those other areas, we haven't said that the Tunisian president must stay. We haven't said that Gaddafi must stay. We haven't said that Mubarak must stay. We couldn't say that and accept that the will of those people was just going to be completely ignored. All right. But let those, me, look, Nigel, let me just interrupt to, to give Graham a po- chance to respond to some of your earlier points. Uh, Graham, yeah. uh, I, I think, uh, uh, Nigel, what you're saying is, is persuasive, but okay, the Free Syrian Army representatives and the opposition, as Rich said, a lot of Americans know them. These are guys that we meet in in Turkey. You don't see them fighting on the ground in in, uh, Syria. So they're spending their time talking to folks like us, not having any control over 1,200 different groups are fighting independently. Okay, Nick Burns. Uh, Just a point of fact, the Free Syrian Army is inside Syria. It's commanded by General Salim Idris. Our colleague David Ignatius of the Washington Post has reported on his activities there. It's the National Coalition, the political group that, you know, goes around the world raising money, trying to raise consciousness. So I think the real question here that I wanted to address to Rich and to Graham, it's, it's certainly legitimate of you to say there's a risk in what you're proposing, a risk in action. But I think also the onus has to be on you to answer the question, what is the risk of inaction? If we do nothing, uh, do we suffer? Does, do American strategic interests suffer? Um, Richard Falkenroth. There's two halves of the argument. Uh, the first is about vital national interest, and I think it seems to us that you agree with us that it, we haven't met that bar. Uh, but there's a second half, which is you need to reasonably articulate a plan that gets you to a better place when you're done. And so, it, the, in fact, the onus is on you to articulate an alternative plan that gets us somewhere. When, interestingly, I mean, the, and, and sec- you know, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff just have to testify to this effect for his uh, confirmation hearing. Uh, and he basically said there isn't one. Nigel Schoenwald. 
All of them are problematic, but of course the chairman of the Joint Chiefs supports the uh, limited supplies of arms to the, uh, to the Syrian rebels, which the president has authorised. So uh, he believes that that is uh, a reasonable uh, policy choice, which will not drag America in in the way that the other policy options he analysed uh, might. Now, I think the, you know, the, the, the issue is, um, is this any different from the other situations we've seen in the Middle East? All very difficult. In Libya, everyone rightly said, what, what chaos? But there was a transition process. There were elections, again, with a moderate group elected. It's still very chaotic in Libya, but we're all going to have to live with 10 or 20 years of unwinding of this extraordinary set of events in the Middle East. We can't wait for that perfect moment to arrive. I want to put a question back to the side that's saying that the U.S. has no dog in the fight in Syria. The question was put to you, what will be the consequences of inaction? You parried with a question back to the other side. It allowed it to go. But I really want to know what your answer to the question is, the consequences of inaction. Let's take a specific your opponents put to you. Not rescuing this humanitarian crisis. Is it not significantly harmful to American interests and reputation not to be acting in the case of the Syrian refugees and the killing that's going on and there? And the answer is, of course it is. Graham Allison. And, of course, the U.S. is acting. I mean, let's be clear. Who is the largest uh, supporter of humanitarian assistance to Syria today? The U.S. So but, Graham, I think the for, sense of the question is, the, the I think the sense of the question is, is not strictly about blankets and tents. I think part of the question is bringing back, say, for example, the, uh, the example of Bosnia, where a refugee crisis, in addition to other things, but a refugee crisis prompted very, very aggressive American action, not just in the... Uh, I, th- I think that's a good analogy, and I think in that instance, there were very special circumstances. Nick has actually written about this. There were very special circumstances in which a limited U.S. military intervention made the difference at the margin to get to a better place. And I think that was a good example. In this instance, why is it different? We have an old professor that used to make a list where you draw it down the middle of the page. You say similar and different. The similarities in this case are superficial. The differences are profound. Nick Burns. You know, part of the problem is that Assad is trying to frame the international debate, it's me against the jihadists. You Americans don't have a dog in the fight. Actually, if you listen to the Iranians and listen to Russia, that's exactly what they're saying. Stay out. You don't have an interest. What we're saying is we're facing a complex environment there. There are al-Qaeda groups and there are jihadi groups, and Richard knows more about this than anybody. But there also is the moderate element. The only way to help the refugees and the people of Syria is to support that moderate element. Why should we want to see the jihadis and the Syrian government to be the only people armed? We have to give these moderate rebels a chance. That's the basis of President Obama's policy, which we support. Richard Falkenrath, your response. Uh, Nick said a key term there, and I, I, I think their entire argument hangs on a very slender thread around the key term of moderate opposition. Uh, And so we do, in fact, have a national coalition that was in December, not that long ago, recognized by the, quote, friends of Syria as the place to send the money. But it is dominated by the Muslim Brotherhood, and it is essentially a playground for Qatari, Saudi, and UAE and Turkish influence peddling. The Free Syrian Army, our best hope for the modern people on the ground fighting, is not integrated in any way. It's a loose umbrella of, of dozens of different fighting groups. And let's just be clear, our friends in the Free Syrian Army, they were the ones who criticized us for deeming the al-Nusra Front a terrorist organization. 
So these are our friends. This is the moderate opposition and the dog that you think we have. I mean, this, we, we don't get to pick the dominant post-Assad faction in, in Syria. Hello, I'm John Donvan, moderator of Intelligence Squared U.S. Join us online at iq2us.org to vote on the motion and keep the debate going. Hello, I'm John Donvan, host and moderator of Intelligence Squared U.S. One note before we continue. The debate you're listening to was recorded in early August. While news coming out of Syria continues to evolve, this debate provides an important grounding in the key issues at stake for U.S. involvement. The debaters delivered arguments on the long view, and those arguments still stand. I want to remind you that we are in the question and answer section of this Intelligence Squared U.S. debate. I'm John Donvan, your moderator. We have four debaters, two teams of two, debating this motion, the U.S. has no dog in the fight in Syria. All right, let's go to questions, please. Sir, right on the aisle. Thank you. Hi, my name is Matteo Grodofalo. Uh, I have a question predominantly for the side, which is saying that we should, in fact, intervene in Syria. Given the way that large opposition groups like the Free Syrian Army have brutalized and attacked a a variety of minority groups, such as the Kurds, the Alawite, the Christians in Syria, can they necessarily be deemed to have a moral high ground? Are they the good guys? Nick Burns, would you like to take that question? Well, again, what, what, what we are proposing and is not proposing a military intervention in Syria. We're proposing an intensified effort by the United States to rally international support for those moderate elements. Are they perfect? No. But compare them to the other side, to the Assad government, using artillery against civilian uh, neighborhoods in Damascus and Aleppo and other Syrian cities, raising Hums and Hama. There's a big difference between the Syrian government and the moderate rebel forces, and, they, and in that relative light, they are the good guys. But do, do, do we need to be concerned about, as the questioner asked, the uh, nasty stuff they've done? Sure we do. And, you know, I think that what, what all of us are struggling with, you know, there is a risk of doing things, and there are a lot of risks involved in what we're proposing, what the president is doing. We just think if we do nothing, the status quo continues. The real victims of that will be those 6.8 million Syrians who've lost their home or lost their job or can't live in the way they want to live. And so they're the people we've got to keep focused on. Graham Allison. Very briefly, I think the question was right on target. And I think to Nick, we're not doing nothing. As I said before, we're the largest humanitarian assistance being provided. We're currently trying to work with an international coalition to get negotiations going. We've been trying to get a, a, a peace negotiation in which the Russians would be co-hosting some uh, negotiated outcome, which is our best hope. All those things we're doing, not successfully, I would say. So the question is, if it continues in this way, is it so important to us that if the only way to secure our interests is military intervention, we should do so? And we think the answer is, unfortunately, no. Okay, another question. I feel this has moved very quickly from dog to feasibility. So my question is about feasibility. You mentioned the peace talks which have been stalled. Um, And to what extent can increased intervention from the friends of Syria and the United States give both sticks and carrots to uh, give Russia particularly an incentive to get Assad to the table and negotiate a transfer, which might provide some opportunity for those moderate elements? Well, I think that 
particularly the United States, have tried that with the, with the Russians uh, you know, over a long, long period to get them to change their position sufficiently to get Assad seriously to the negotiating table. Um, it hasn't worked so far. I'd have to say in the present state of U.S.-Russian relations, it doesn't look more likely to be successful um, you know, in, the, in the weeks um, and months ahead. I fear that the only thing that will get Assad to negotiate or allow his um, his team to negotiate, is a change in the situation on the ground. We're saying there are things that can change that situation on the ground. And the rebels say themselves they want more American and international support. They want the arms from the United States. They want the arms from Qatar and from Saudi Arabia and elsewhere. And they believe that with them, they can tip the balance, change the situation on the ground sufficiently to put Assad and his regime under pressure and start a negotiation. All right, and I R- think Richard, that's conceivable. Richard Falcon. Since part of your argument is that the undogworthiness of this battle uh, is the is the impossibility of uh, any of these things coming to being, or the near impossibility, what's your response to the scenario just laid out? I, th- I think uh, first, Nigel is correct that in order to get a negotiated settlement with Assad, you do need to change the situation on the ground. In fact, it has changed in, in last year in two ways. Hezbollah entered in force from uh, Lebanon, and Al Qaeda entered in force from Iraq. Uh, not us. Uh, And so I think the basic diplomatic premise is correct. You need to shift the military balance in such a way that it is in their interest to achieve a negotiated settlement. Now, that's the problem with that is that's what we call a proxy war. And so it is a recipe for entering a proxy war in Syria, not just against Assad, but against al-Qaeda, which the military analysis, which is not favorable to that case. Sir, in the far back in the white T-shirt. Thank you. Uh, my name is Steve Began, and I have a question for both panels. If your position prevailed, and we aren't talking about intervening or not, we're talking about degrees of intervention really here, I think, between the two panels. If your degree of intervention, if your position prevailed, what outcome within realism do you think would be most favorable for the United States' interests? That's a terrific question. Um, I'd like to put it first to the side that's arguing the U.S. has no dog in the fight in Syria. Graham Allison. Absolutely great question. I would say that our hope would be, and the best hope, is a situation in which the combination of humanitarian assistance to the victims and close working with the neighbors in the region and a strategic concept of a government that could exist after a transition leads to a negotiation in which there's an extended transition of power. And I would say that's a, that's a stretch, but the alternatives to that, if I look at them, are worse. Other side, uh, Nigel Schoenwald. I don't think our recipe is fundamentally different. It's the same. I think our, our view is that that has to be approached more urgently, and we need to put more tools on the table, get more, get, get more involved, short of um, being sucked into boots on the ground and, and real military, military action. But I'm just looking at the other comparable examples. And my comparable examples will be not ones that will be very appealing to this audience or to a British audience in terms of what we'd want politically. But I look at Tunisia, um, uh, Egypt. I look at Libya. I see all the reasons why um, it would have been very convenient to keep the, uh, the old regimes in power, but I don't see al-Qaeda in charge in any of those places, and I don't see why, the, why that needs to be the case in Syria either. You can hear from Richard and then Nick. Nigel, Richard a, lot, a, a lot hangs on y- your assessment of the character of the Syrian state, 
And one of the key differences between Tunisia and Egypt, to a lesser extent Libya, is the sectarian division in Syria is far worse. And so the speed with which the protest took off and the violence took off was not merely a moderate bourgeois uh, rebellion against an autocrat. It was uh, the emergence of a sectarian conflict which had been suppressed by force by the Alawites, a Shiite sect, for years, at least going back to 1970. I mean, to say that – to have – hang so much on the idea that a moderate Syrian secular leadership and consensus will emerge. We didn't even hope for that in Iraq. Right in the center. Hi, my name is Lindsay Hanahan, and I'm desperate for some hope here. So we have a new leader in Iran, and I'm hearing this conversation about the proxy fight. If we're looking at do we or do we not have a dog in the fight, and part of that hinges on who that dog is that we're fighting as well, I believe. If who we're fighting changes in terms of this proxy, do we now have a dog in the fight if Iran pulls out and... And who's on the other side? Who's on the other side right. changes. Okay. Great. Uh, who would like to take that side first? Uh, Richard Falkenrath, um, arguing the U.S. has no dog in the fight. I, I don't have a crystal ball, but I doubt it. It's longstanding. I mean, Syria is Iran's last friend in the region. Their support for Hezbollah goes back to 1982. Syria is the funnel through which the arms get to Hezbollah. And the new president is not, in fact, the supreme leader. The supreme leader is the supreme leader. Uh, uh, And so this policy seems pretty well marbled into the Iranian state, and I doubt it will change of its own accord just because of an election. The other side, Nick I think it's a really good question. I, I don't disagree with Richard. I think he's probably right. But he's a different guy. Then Jalili, the former nuclear negotiator, he, the Europeans found him to be more pragmatic and straightforward when they dealt with him a couple of years ago. So we ought to give negotiations a chance. We haven't had a serious negotiation with Iran and sustained since the Jimmy Carter administration. So we may not be able, probably won't, I think Richard's right, change their minds. But let's put Syria on the table and see if we can make some progress there. It's at least worth a try. And that concludes round two of this Intelligence Squared U.S. debate. And here's where we are. We are are about to hear brief closing statements from each debater in turn. Uh, Our motion is this. The U.S. has no dog in the fight in Syria. Round three, closing statements. Here to speak first against the motion, Nicholas Burns. He is professor at the Harvard Kennedy School and former undersecretary of state for political affairs. Eighteen years ago, uh, at the height of the Bosnian War in 1995, I found myself a State Department spokesperson, and my job basically was to give daily press conferences and defend the Clinton administration's foreign policy. One of the toughest and most painful moments of my entire career came in July of that year, when the Bosnian Serb military went through a Dutch UN garrison outside the city of Srebrenica. They went into the town, they rounded up 8,000 men and boys, and they shot them. And I had to explain the following days, as did my White House colleague Mike McCurry, why didn't the United States act? Why hadn't we made sure that the United Nations had a tougher mission in Bosnia? And a lot of us in the Clinton administration at the time vowed that we would never again stand by and let something like that happen. Now, we can't be everywhere. Graham's right. We can't solve the world's problems. We're not the world's policemen. We can't intervene everywhere. But at least we can try, without putting military forces in, to help the people of Syria. The people who are supporting the rebel groups are the majority in Syria. And the approach that Nigel and I outlined is far better than doing nothing. Because if we say we have no dog in the fight, we consign the Syrian people to the brutalization of the Assad government. 
And it may be two, three, or four years before they're able to get on their feet, form a new government, and kick Assad out. But we need to stay the course with them. Thank you very much. Thank you. Nicholas Burns. Our motion is the U.S. has no dog in the fight in Syria. And here to speak in support of the motion, it means he thinks the U.S. has no dog in this fight, Richard Falkenrath, a principal with the Chertoff Group and former Deputy Homeland Security Advisor. So uh, if we interpret this motion as do we care, there's no difference between the two panels. Uh, but the, real, the proposition before us is what to do about it. Uh, and here, uh, I think you've heard slightly different prescriptions from Nick and, and Nigel, and I'm going to choose to focus on the one I heard from Nigel, which I think is correct, that a political outcome uh, in Syria requires changing facts on the ground. And in order to change the facts on the ground, you need to tilt the military balance against Assad in some way or another. That is what we call a proxy war. I have no objection. Uh, on a principled basis to proxy warfare, but I do on a pragmatic basis, which is if we are going to get into them, we should have a reasonable belief that we can succeed. And it's not the case for several different reasons, one of which is our proxy is uh, not very reliable and, in fact, not very powerful, this moderate opposition. Another is the opponent is deeply entrenched, and their own sponsors, Hezbollah, Iran, Russia, are completely uninhibited by the restraints that we have. Russia is sending uh, advanced anti-aircraft systems to Syria right now. So I think the other side, though they wish to avoid saying we're for military intervention, in fact, the essence of their political strategy requires a change of the military facts on the ground, and that involves giving military support to the fighters. That is what we call a proxy war, and unless you are very, very sure that you will prevail in the end, it strikes me as an unwise policy, and if you interpret the motion that way uh, and vote with uh, where Graham and I stand. Thank you, Richard Falkenroth. And our motion is the U.S. has no dog in the fight in Syria, and here to speak against this motion. It means he does think the U.S. has a dog in the fight in Syria. Nigel Scheinwald, he's a former British ambassador to the U.S. and foreign policy and defense advisor to Prime Minister Tony Blair. Uh, I'm not a gung-ho interventionist. I've spent my life being a sort of pragmatist and a realist about um, these things. And as you mentioned at the beginning, John, uh, six years ago, uh, my Prime Minister, Tony Blair, sent me to Damascus to try to negotiate with President Assad for a better, less confrontational relationship between Syria and our countries. We made a bit of progress. We had a long day of negotiation. We made a bit of progress in relation to Syria's relationship with, uh, with Iraq. But on the big issues, on Iran, on Lebanon, on, on his overall relationship with us, I came away empty-handed. And I concluded two things from that. The first thing was um, the really crucial importance of Syria in its region and internationally. Uh, things won't get done in this region without Syria being much more stable, having a much better future than it has today. And secondly, I concluded that Assad wouldn't make good choices by himself. Unfortunately, things have collapsed significantly since then because he reacted as badly and unwisely as he did to the uh, revolution which, uh, uh, which started uh, in March of, uh, of 2011. So I agree with what, uh, with what Rich said earlier. Um, I don't think there's a difference between us in the sense of do we care. Yes, I think we do. It's a question about how much and what our tolerance is for allowing the present situation to continue. And we think there is a realistic prospect of getting to a position where the Syrians themselves can decide. And that's what we've got to back, and that's our dog in the fight. Thank you, Nigel Scheinwald. 
Our motion is the U.S. has no dog in the fight in Syria. And here to speak in support of the motion, who says the U.S. does not have a dog in this fight, Graham Allison. He is director of Harvard's Belfer Center for Science and International Affairs and former assistant secretary of defense. As you think about your vote tonight, I would say ask three questions. I would urge you to to consider three questions. First, we are just exiting two wars in which we entered without understanding the realities of the country to which we sent Americans to fight in the battle. So who imagines that we understand what's happening in Syria better than we did in Iraq and Afghanistan? Second question, there's almost parallel realities. On the one hand, foreign policy experts look abroad and say, here's dragons, this is a problem, this is a danger, we need to mount an effort. But there's another reality, which is where is this country today? Look at Washington. Not just broke, but broken, stalemated, unable to even have a budget, and maybe on a drift to a close down of the government. Is this a government that's ready to engage in yet another military operation? Finally, uh, for, those of you, for those of you that have children or grandchildren, if you imagine that by voting that we have a dog in the fight, you were at risk of sending your daughter or son to Syria, how would you vote? Graham Allison, thank you very much. Your time is up. And that concludes our closing statements. And now it is time to learn which side you feel has argued the best. All right, ladies and gentlemen. Um, I just want to uh, take care of a couple of uh, pleasant pieces of business, and the main one is to say that uh, the, the, the spirit and the honesty and the respect for one another that these debaters brought to the stage is what Intelligence Squared aims for. The level of argument was superb, and I want to thank them for that. Um, I also want to thank for, for being here with us um, some guests that we're delighted to have, the former Secretary of State, Secretary Albright. Thank you very much for being here. Also, I think I saw uh, Brent Scowcroft, and uh, yeah. What what uh, what we appreciate about having you here, uh, what we appreciate having you here, is that for all of you, none of this is just theoretical. You've all been in these situations, and it wasn't a show on a stage. You actually had to make the decisions. We respect and thank all of you for having done your best in making those decisions all this time, and thank you for being here with us. Remember, once again, it's the team who has changed your vote the most in terms of percentage points from before the debate to after the debate. The motion is this. The U.S. has no dog in the fight in Syria. Before the debate, 40% of you agreed with the motion that the U.S. has no dog in the fight in Syria. 28% were against the motion, and 32% were undecided. So those are the opening results. So here's the second vote. On this motion, the U.S. has no dog in the fight in Syria. The team arguing for the second motion moved to 61%. From 40% to 61%, they picked up 21 percentage points. That is the number to beat. Let's see. The team against the motion, the first vote was 28%. The second vote was 33%. It's not enough. The debate goes to the other side. Our winners, the team arguing in favor of the motion that the U.S. does not have a dog in the fight. Our congratulations to them. Thank you for me, John Donvan, and Intelligence Squared. We'll see you next time. Intelligence Squared U.S. is supported by the Rosencrantz Foundation and distributed by NPR. Dana Wolf is the executive producer. Maureen McMurray and Rob Christensen are the radio producers. Damon Whittemore is the audio engineer. Chris Kamakawa is researcher. And I'm your host, John Donvan. 
For more information or to purchase tickets to future events, visit www.iq2us.org. That's iq, the number two, us.org.